Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 179, recorded for the week of August 24th, 2022. Google Cloud can't be DDoSed. Good evening, Peter, Ryan, and Jonathan. Full house tonight. Hey, Justin. Hello. Hey. Yeah. Uh, a little bit of a slow news week. I mean, there are a lot of stories, but they're not always that interesting of stories. <laughs> As all our listeners are shut off now, they're like, okay, I'm out. Uh, no, I mean, they're good. They're just, they're just, the quality is a little lacking this week. So we'll, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of them, just what they mean, I think, uh, which is nice. You know, a little more, a little more talking, a little less uh, news reading is always nice as well. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, let's start up with uh, AWS. Uh, trusted Advisor has a new capability if you're paying for enterprise support. So if you have Trusted Advisor through business support, this is not your feature. Uh, but the new capability is called Trusted Advisor Priority. It gives you prioritized and context-driven recommendations, which are manually created by your AWS account team. So this is the best thing you always want in cloud, which is humans giving you context. Uh, and that context comes from their knowledge of your environment and machine-generated checks from AWS services. The new priority capabilities gives you a prioritized view of critical risks. It shows prioritized contextual recommendations and actionable insights based on your business outcomes and what's important to you. It also surfaces risk proactively identified by your AWS account team to alert and address critical cloud risk stemming from deviations from AWS best practices. And I mean, at the end of the day, if I had business support, I think I'd just ask my account rep to give me this data and just not put it in the console for free versus paying for enterprise support for them to put it into Trusted Advisor. Finally, they found a use for Mechanical Turk. <laughs> <laughs> ah. I just, I think this is really just institutionalizing the knowledge that the enterprise customers are already getting from their account team. And it probably really helps in the event that the AWS account team experiences churn for those customers not to uh, be negatively impacted by it. it. Probably makes it really easy for new people on that AWS account team to come in and, and know where the other team left off. I don't think it's really a new feature, really just a new way to access data that customers are already getting. Yeah, so now when you, you know, when you've told your TAM to take a hike about, you know, enabling dual VPN paths for your connectivity to the cloud to your private data center, you can now put that in your trusted advisor notes and they'll hopefully see it and leave you alone. Is that yes. what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't say I didn't tell you. That's a service. <laughs> <laughs> This is a, this is our liability service. Like we we told you, entrusted advisor. So you have no way to blame us for not telling you because we told you, entrusted advisor. Because I know all of you guys live entrusted advisor every day. It's better than email, I suppose. True. <laughs> yeah. True. Good point. <laughs> Maybe then I can you know fire off a sock alert or something to it to some other <laughs> team, and then they can harass me about it too. So then my account rep and my sock team can. <laughs> it's great. It's really this is a quality service that I can't wait to use. Uh, well, if you've been curious about what's happening during domain updates of OpenSearch, uh, particularly when it's doing blue-green deployments, AWS is now allowing you to monitor the progress of a domain update, which can involve a blue-green deployment for the OpenSearch Surface Console or through the Configuration API. OpenSearch will publish any validation failure events to EventBridge, and you can also view them in the Notifications tab. And having watched an OpenSearch uh, cluster that was very small take 45 minutes to upgrade, I can only imagine what a big cluster looks like and having any ability to know what's going on is a plus because sometimes things in the Amazon world are a black box. Yeah, visibility is good for sure. 
uh, it's always one of those things where you're staring at a dashboard just waiting for the status to change from red to green, right? This is hopefully this allows some sort of relief to that. Yeah, and hopefully not in a, in a uh, outage where you're really hoping for it to get to green quickly. <laughs> I had a really good experience with DHL recently, where I was getting something shipped from like Eastern Europe, and it was awesome because they sent me every step of the way. Watch this thing land in Germany. Watch it take off. Watch it land in the U.S. Watch it go through customs. I mean, the whole time I was not I had no questions. It took a long time to get here, but the whole time it was stress free because I'm like, yeah. It's on its way. Yep. Still coming. Still getting closer. It was it was kind of cool. Getting getting that kind of visibility to the process is great. Amazon RDS for Oracle now supports managed Oracle data guard switchover and automated backups for read replicas. Uh, this allows you to switch over almost seamlessly between read or mounted read replicas deployed within an AZ or in a separate AZ or in a different region. Oracle Data Guard Switchover feature uh, allows you to reverse the roles between the primary and a standby replica with no data loss and a brief outage. It provides a complete automation to reliably perform periodic disaster recovery drills when the primary is active, as well as any infra maintenance of the primary environment. Once the switchover is initiated, the primary database transitions to a standby role, and the standby database transitions to the primary role. Bystander replicas that are not part of the switchover are reconfigured for replication from the new primary database. Previously, if you wanted to do this, you had to promote a replica set as a new standalone database and then create a new replica to do the DR drills. You can also now create automated backups and manual DB snapshots of an RDS for Oracle replica, which reduces the time spent taking backups following a role transition, and you can create a new DB instance by restoring from such a DB snapshot or performing a point-in-time recovery. Uh, available in all AWS regions and incurs no additional cost. However, uh, these features do require Oracle Database Enterprise Edition licenses, which were BYOL, uh, and uh, you are required to use those if you're using replicas in a mounted mode, as well as you need an Oracle Active Data Guard license to use replicas in a read-only mode. I mean, if you're already on Oracle and you already have your licenses, this is awesome. I mean, especially if you're using Data Guard, which is pretty sweet. Yeah. It definitely feels like a feature that someone was like, I really want this, and you know, we already pay for the license, and... AWS is like, fine, enough people have asked for it, plus one. <laughs> so now they finally yeah. gave it to you. It's probably the difference between running Oracle on your own, you know, virtual instances or not, you know, in a lot of cases. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, especially if it's part of your DR plan that you're just going to do a, a switch over with Oracle Data Guard and switch back. And, you know, it's a couple minute process in the old way. And now it's, you know, now I need a promotion. I need all this work. It's a, it's a massive amount of effort uh, for something that's pretty trivial. Uh, but it, it is interesting that it does do it to a separate region as well, which is you know really handy because a lot of these uh, tools don't handle regions. So nice to see. Uh, we're going to uh, Google, and our first story is a death by Google story. <laughs> uh, Google Cloud has notified customers that it is killing its IoT core service for managing connected devices. The service will be deprecated on August sixteenth, twenty twenty three. Uh, IoT Core was introduced in 2017 and eases the task of sending data from connected devices to a company's cloud-based analytics environment, and it also helps with several related tasks. Uh, there's a quote from a Google spokesperson to TechCrunch. Since launching IoT Core, it has become clear that our customers' needs could be better served by our network of partners that specialize in IoT applications and services. We have worked extensively to provide customers with migration options and solution alternatives, and are providing a year-long runway before IoT Core is discontinued. Uh, I mean... What doesn't build confidence in your cloud provider abandoning you midway through uh, and pushing off to partners who are going to charge you more money? What's great? Really great way to build confidence, Google, that you're not going to kill everything someday. Yeah, AWS is still running Simple Table, right? 
Yep. Still running it. Simple DB. Yeah, just don't turn it off, man. Just stop selling it and don't turn it off. Yeah. Yeah, maybe people need like, to start worrying nice. about vendor vendor lock out rather than vendor lock in. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it was, it was funny after I saw this article, I was like, well, who are, you know, Kurt Gartner, who is the leader in IoT? Uh, and, of course, it's Amazon. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's like, so you're giving up this market, huh? Like, you just think your partners are going to be better at it. And, and there are partners who leverage, you know, Amazon's product as well and, and enhance it and provide additional capabilities above what AWS provides you. Um, and there's also competitive products out there as well, but like, you know, you're giving up a big market, uh, potentially with this announcement and saying, Hey, we we're abandoning a pretty big market segment, at least what I believe is a big market segment. And then I guess the other side of it is, I don't know who's going to care because I don't know who uses IOT on Google. I know who uses IOT on, on Amazon cause they just bought them. iRobot. robot, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, other than that, I don't, I don't really know who uses Google IOT. So maybe, maybe no one's using it. That's just an easy, easy kill job here. Maybe. I think it's the struggle for Google, right? As they try to make their cloud presence profitable, you know, they got to make these decisions. And, and at least this time, they're given some warning, and they're hopefully they've engaged with their customers, so that you know that there's a path path forward. But it sucks. Yeah, especially if you've got software running on IoT devices in people's homes or factories or you know on the moon, or Mars, someplace else. <laughs> well, and, and yeah. there's risk, it's right? A to changing migration, your... right? It's a migration. That's like yeah. Significant project with a drop dead deadline of eleven months, eleven and a half months. Yeah, and also has significant risk because typically IoT devices, you know, are not very big. They don't have a lot of storage. They don't have a lot of CPU power. And if you have an error <laughs> in updating this SDK, that you know puts you could brick a lot of devices that now have to be replaced and and re re sent out or serviced. Um, so you know potentially this is a very expensive proposition to you. And if you know, maybe you build an IoT product, it's out there doing just fine, but you don't really have a lot of investment in it because maybe it wasn't successful. Now you're, now you're faced with the whole product becomes end of life, or I now take this major risk to a thing I don't want to make, I don't want to service. So it's it's lots of lots of issues here. Yeah, and in um, in tech, you get a lot of escrow agreements where you know if a company is dependent on a service that somebody else provides, that you have to make arrangements that if the company doesn't no longer want to service that that particular feature or something that, that you can or if they go out of business, then you can have access to the source code. You can continue to operate that yourself um, to mitigate the risk of your own business. But of course, with cloud compute, there's no way somebody else could take on running the Google IoT core service um, without you know significant changes to the way everything works. That's kind of what you want, though. Yeah, totally agree. Well, if you're a SUSE Linux Enterprise Server customer on Google with uh, 24/7 by support, uh, you can now use CUDs uh, or committed use discounts to get a better discount on all of those SUSE Linux boxes on the Google Cloud. Uh, this can save you up to as much as 79% on a three-year deal, uh, and is a great way to get uh, you know discounts in a simple, efficient way. Uh, Frank Powell, president of Managed Core, a Google Cloud partner, had to say about this offering: "We are excited to join Google and SUSE on this new CUD offering for SLES." This will enable our joint customers to accelerate their workload migrations to cloud from proprietary to more open source solutions. At the same time, it allows them to leverage the maximum discounts, providing choice and flexibility to run their modern workloads on Google Cloud. I'm unclear. Is, is that a discount on the actual SUSE license, or is it just a discount on the hardware? It's a discount on the hardware. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think there's a... You don't get a discount on Windows licenses with CUDs, so I don't... I think it's purely just the compute resources, but mm. you know, this is one of those weird areas to me, because the way that Google bills 
servers with operating systems is the operating system is its own separate line item anyways. Mm-hmm. So why do I, you know, why am I really worried about the operating system that you build for me separately? Because the, the resources are the same. So an old cut I would have thought would have worked just fine. So it's a little bit of an interesting announcement. Mm-hmm. But it says it saves you 79% on license costs. Right? Mm, by purchasing SLES committed use of account, you can save up to 79% on SLES li- oh, yeah, license costs. So that's good. So it is your license costs on top yeah. of the pay-as-you-go prices. Hmm. See? Read the article and you'll know. <laughs> uh, one to two virtual cores uh, list price is $0.11. Cents, uh, and that's all the way up to five plus virtual cores. And so it goes down to uh, basically on a three-year cut, basically $0.02 cents, uh, on a one to two virtual cores and a half a, or $0.05 cents on five plus virtual cores. So it's, uh, it's interesting. So you are getting a discount on the server already. Now you're getting a discount on the licensing as well. So that's interesting. Then does that become two cuts? I have a cut for the server and I have a cut for the operating system? Nothing's confusing about this at all. And now we have FinOps. That's that's why. Yep, yep. Let the FinOps guy figure it out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, and it gets worse because they have flex codes as well, which are like savings plans for for AWS. So then, like, how is this applied to a flex code plan? And when that gets GA later this year, like, who knows? <laughs> That's for your FinOps person to figure out and yell at somebody at Google, like, what do you mean you're not going to cover my operating system in a flex code? So, yeah. Well, apparently on June 1st, uh, a Google Cloud Armor customer was targeted with a series of HTTPS DDoS attacks, which peaked at 46 million requests per second which is apparently the largest Layer 7 DDoS reported to date, at least 76% larger than the previously reported record by Cloudflare. Uh, and to give a sense of scale, Google tells us that this is like hitting the entire day's worth of traffic re- request to Wikipedia in 10 seconds. Oof. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Cloud Armor Adaptive Protection was able to detect and analyze traffic early in the attack lifecycle. Cloud Armor alerted the customer with a recommended protective rule, which was then deployed before the attack ramped up to its full magnitude. Cloud Armor blocked the attack, ensuring the customer service stayed online and continued serving their end users. Uh, a little bit of the details here. Uh, it started out 9.45 a.m. on June 1st uh, with 10,000 requests per second. Uh, eight minutes later, it grew to 100,000 RPS per second, and that's when the Cloud Armor alert uh, triggered. Uh, and then about two minutes after they applied the new rule recommendation, it peaked to 46 million RPS, and then the attack so decreased and ended 69 minutes later. Uh, the attack came from 5,246 source IPs from 132 countries contributing to the attack. And the top four countries only represented 31% of the total traffic. So this is a massive attack. Uh, 22% of the source IPs corresponded to Tor exit nodes, although the request volume coming from those nodes represented just 3% of the attack traffic. Uh, interestingly enough, this, means, this does mean, if you do the math, that Tor exit nodes represented 1.3 million requests per second of the total attack, which is a massive amount of unwelcome traffic from Tor exit nodes, which I did not know they were possible to do because they are slow. Uh, and based on the data analyzed, it appears to be an attack that matches the Maris family of attacks. Uh, good job, Google. Thanks. But then next week, someone else will announce that they have the new record for DDoS attack, <laughs> you know, saving your bacon. It is incredible, though. Yeah, when you can do it scale, right? When you have that big a scale, you can spend the time and the money to do something like this right. And DDoS attacks can go the way of the dodo bird eventually. Yeah, actually, they said in the article that. You know, basically because it got mitigated so quickly that there was no impact to the customer site. That most likely that's the reason why it didn't last very long because yeah. they saw there was no value in continuing the attack. Isn't it better just to use all those 
uh, zombie computers to mine bitcoins for you. Nobody would even bother you. A couple fans go on. No one's noticing their fans going on in their desktop PC. Who cares? Why is my computer running so slow? Well, just mining Bitcoin, no problem. <laughs> From the hackers that have got access to it. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ignoring those Tor nodes, which didn't make up a whole lot of traffic, that's that's like 12,000 requests a second per source IP on average. That's that's enormous. Yeah. Well, and, you know, a lot of companies, I, I think they were mentioning this because, um, you know, it's been a big trend lately to start blocking Tor exit nodes and, and blocking Tor traffic and, you know, I, I think they highlight this on purpose because there's been some question of like, well, how much value is that actually providing to you? But like they said, it's you know, twelve thousand per IP. There are twelve hundred per IP. That's a lot. So, I wonder if that's just correlation though, not causation. Like, it wasn't Tor related? Just people running Tor exit nodes are also more likely to end up getting compromised and. Getting used for DDoS. Attacks. I mean, there's a there's a definitely a percentage of Tor people who are definitely at risk of being compromised. Who yeah. shouldn't be on Tor exit nodes. And then yeah. there's a lot of people who are on Tor exit nodes who know what they're doing and probably wouldn't be in that camp. But they also may be downloading things that could potentially get them compromised. So yeah, you know, you might be right. I don't know. Yeah, I guess that Tor traffic could be accidental or incidental. You know, if if you got a device that's infected. Well, again, this is a proxy. Yeah. It's a proxy attack, right? So it, it's very possible that no nodes were on the Tor network. It just happened to be the proxy they were hitting was, or had some ability to get to a Tor exit node. Hmm. Uh, and Google is putting the power of Google's intelligence in the hand of your SOC team with the GA of curated detections as part of the Chronicle SecOps suite. The detections are built by the Google Cloud Threat Intelligence team and are actively maintained to reduce manual toil in your team. Uh, security teams with this release can enable highly curated uh, detections with a single click from within the Chronicle cancel, console. Uh, operationalized data with high fidelity threat detection stitch with context available from authoritative sources, sources such as IAM and CMDB. Accelerate investigation response by finding animalistic, uh, animal, I don't know anomalistic, anomalistic <laughs> assets and domains <laughs> of prevalence, visualization for the detection triggered, and map detection coverage of the MITRE attack framework to better understand adversary tactics and techniques and uncover potential gaps in the defense. Uh, the first curated detections are Windows-based threats, including info stealers, ransomware, rats, misused software, and crypto activity, and network attacks, including exfil of data, suspicious behavior, and additional vectors, which is a good starting place. Windows is always the first place I'd start, too, if I was trying to do security tools. Uh, and then uh, you add on from there. So good call. So if you're running theme in, in some of the... Um, some of the news we have today, like cloud providers doing things for you that you could really be doing yourself. Well, that's the advantage of you know using a cloud provider, right? Is historically you always did these things yourself. You ran the servers, you ran these things, but now now you're you know as they're getting more sophisticated, there's more and more you can leverage your provider partner for. Yeah, here's a tool, but we don't know how to use it. Use it for us, okay. So here's a, here's the the auto, or the uh, curated reports, okay. Mm, but now yeah. what do we do? But now what do we do with them? I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, that's how they know the next service to build. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, some you know, if you think about how many companies are just desperate to get security people because it's such a you know of all the markets, security engineers is one of the hardest to hire. Uh, you know, it sort of makes sense that the more tools you can provide, the more things make the few people you do have somewhat more effective is going to be a win in security. Probably more so than it is in other technology areas where you know people are you, know, you can throw more people at the problem. So uh, in this particular case, I see there's some being some value in the earlier trusted advisory. Uh, I have less value, but this one I, I can see some, <laughs> some things. 
Agreed. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogUp solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPods sent you. Your dedicated FogUps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice. Uh, well, in a, a strange Azure announcement this week, they are giving you the general availability of public IP capability on Azure VMware solutions. Uh, most customer applications running on Azure VMware solution require internet access. These applications require both outbound and inbound interconnectivity. An Azure VMware solution public IP is a simplified and scalable solution for running these applications. And with this capability, you can enable the following direct inbound and outbound internet access to the AVS uh, of the network NSX T Edge. The ability to receive it to 1,000 or more public IP addresses, uh, DDoS security protection against network traffic in and out of the internet, and enable support for VMware HCX, which is the migration tool for VMware VMs, over the public internet. And of all those reasons, the last one is the only one that makes any sense to me, because putting a public IP on my VMware infrastructure versus a load balancer in front of it makes zero sense to me. But they did finally realize that most apps running in the cloud need connectivity. <laughs> which is good, yeah. Right. Thank you for figuring that out. I mean, but now they're it. less secure. Yeah. I mean, I can see enabling it temporarily to do the migration from you know, VMware VMs uh, on-prem. You know, I can see that value prop. But then after that, you turn it off. Because like, why would I? Uh, or is this the, well, you're running Tanzu on your Azure VMware solution. And since it's Tanzu, you need public IPs because you have <laughs> Docker things. <laughs> well, they don't have to be public. It's just the last ad sheet. You know, it needs all the IPs. And so, you know. May as well start using public ones too. Yeah, just IPv6 public IPs, no problem. <laughs> slash, we need a slash zero. <laughs> what does up to a thousand or more mean? Surely it's either up to a thousand or it's a thousand or more. But up to a thousand or more? Does that mean any number? <laughs> like, yeah, pointless PR true. statement. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, that's great marketing right there. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I, that, as you said, I was like, did I miss, did I miss yeah. write that? And I went and looked. No, it does say no, that. That does say that. Yeah, that is uh, that is one hundred percent them. So yeah, that is a little weird. Is it ten twenty four? But they didn't know really how to put that succinctly. You know, <laughs> right? Uh, Azure, come on, man. These are by the way, all of Azure stories are Kubernetes related, so it must be Kubernetes mm-hmm. week at Azure. Uh, they now support uh, Kubernetes 1.24 uh, with 46 enhancements that all came from Kubernetes. So uh, I love you know Azure taking credit for those. Uh, and the version includes the deprecation of Docker Shim, which we mentioned as well on our AWS segment last week uh, in 1.24. So that's a big change for some. Uh, for most of you, it's a non-starter and not a big deal. So if you're in the camp that it's a big change, you're really mad. And if you're everyone else in the world, you don't care. Uh, but uh, for those who care, it's a big deal. Then uh, if you are always said, you know what, I need AKS clusters, but I need them on dedicated hosts, the same dedicated hosts that run the entire Azure cloud, that is now available to you as well <laughs> from Azure this week. With hardware isolation at the physical server level, no other VMs will be placed on your hosts. 
and control over maintenance events initiated by the Azure platform are all in your hands to make sure your Azure Kubernetes dedicated hosts have the best uptime possible with those public IPs. Sounds expensive. Yep. But it's dedicated. It's dedicated expensive. And the final one, which kind of blew my mind, this wasn't a thing already. Uh, they finally integrated key management system into AKS. Uh, and they now support this as a plugin. The GA capability enables encryption at rest of your Kubernetes data in etcd using Azure Key Vault, which means you can now store secrets in your B, bring your own key encrypted etcd using KMS. Now, uh, most Kubernetes people have learned that you never mention etcd. That's the secret part we don't talk about. But currently in the Azure world, they just come right out and say it. Like, oh, that's etcd, man. And, and everyone outside else is cringing. Like, oh my god, no. Uh, but that's, that's the story. It said the quiet part out loud again. I mean, no one's really ever happy with the coordination layer. Like there's, you know, like before etcd, there's Zookeeper. Everyone complained about that. You know, before Zookeeper, there was probably something else. I just don't remember. Was it, I thought etcd was first, and then Zookeeper came after. Do I have that backwards? Oh, it could have just been the way I learned it. Yeah, oh, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, because etcd was hard, and then Zookeeper was supposed to make etcd better, and then it sort of didn't. And then console came along <laughs> if you wanted to pay for a solution, and that's where a lot of people ended up. So. At least that's my memory of it. it and I could be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. I have to go look it up. And we have an Oracle story this week. Always fun. Uh, and the only reason why this one ended up is because, of course, it's about unbreakable things. So... <laughs> If you're super excited about the general availability of Oracle Linux 9, which there, I'm sure there's dozens of you, with the Unbreakable Enterprise Kernel Release 7, along with Red Hat Compatible Kernel on OCI, it is now available to you. Uh, Oracle Linux 9 with uh, an Unbreakable uh, Enterprise Kernel Release 7 provides kernel performance and security enhancements, including that amazing Unbreakable Kernel. The OpenSSL 3.0 and Oracle Linux 9 includes a number of new concepts and structural enhancements uh, around FIPS. Uh, file system enhancements uh, for BTRFS, if you like that, uh, and XFS as well. And then VirtualBox shared folder, for those of you running VirtualBoxes on top of your Oracle Linux 9 box, apparently, it's now natively supported in the kernel of UR7. So there you go. Uh, as well as, because this is an Oracle Linux OCI version, has some special OCI toys to play with, including built-in OCI utilities, because I love that attack vector, access to Oracle Linux YUM server mirrored in OCI, Oracle K-Splice pre-installed, OS management service support, Linux support at no additional cost, and a great option to migrate your CentOS or Red Hat workloads to OCI. I mean, it's not a bad operating system. They've retained the control of some of those cool things through, you know, attorneys and patents and things. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I really don't know. I've never used it. Like, and you couldn't pay me to use it for the real workload <laughs> just because it's branded Oracle. Like, I mean, if you had to support Oracle databases, you would probably want to use it because it yeah. has support for that and it's built in and you don't have to do, you have to do less kernel monkeying around with it. Yeah, my case plus is nice though. Doing kernel patching without rebooting machines is, it was, was always a, a nice nice thing to have until we realized that we should just be throwing things away and replacing right. them. Just, so. It's been so long since I cared, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a little weird to me, the whole idea of an unbreakable enterprise kernel release, because every time I've, I've messed with the kernel, I've broken things. Yeah. <laughs> so, at least the first time. Like, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have enabled that kernel flag. That was, that was, that was my bad. Sorry. It, it does seem like, you know, a challenge accepted kind of moment whenever you brand it that way. Yeah, every, everything unbreakable is, is going to be breakable if I can break it. They just got to get Bruce Willis. That's oh yeah. Spokesman, <laughs> yeah. Man. yeah. It's all I could think of is Bruce Willis surviving the train crash. Uh -huh. That's a great movie. Unfortunately, he's uh he's retired from acting due to much. I know he's not well, I think. 
I think Oracle's probably the only cloud then that you can actually run virtual machines on a virtual machine because normally that flag is disabled. Um, certainly isn't AWS and GCP. You can't run VMs on a VM. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. That's kind of it's, uh, it's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what I would do with that. Other than well, we know, call them me. containers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just call them containers, and it's allowed. Yeah. This is like running Docker and Docker. Like, how far can you go down? You know. Yeah. Well, like we talked about Jenkins in the pre-show before we recorded. And it's like, oh, you can have Jenkins and Docker and Dockers and Dockers. And like you can go multiple <laughs> layers deep in Jenkins and Dockers if you really mm-hmm. want to have a bad day. I've done it. Yeah. Why does my build pipeline work? I don't know. Yeah. Docker failed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somewhere. All right. Well, that is it for new news. Like I said, light show. Uh, Peter, you want to take us to the lightning round? Amazon RDS now supports setting up connectivity between your RDS database and EC2 compute instance in just one click. Exposing your RDS database in one click is definitely a security benefit. Thank you, Amazon. <laughs> DBA is conferring networking, though. That's, that doesn't sound like <laughs> a great plan. Tell me, find me a DBA who's gone into the console and provisioned a database, and then the security group, and I will tell you that's not a that's not a database person. That's a DevOps person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder if they could put that call, that change, into a stored procedure somehow. <laughs> yes you can drop the command <laughs> yeah. line yeah. API call yeah. CLI, CLI call done sorted what if it cleans itself up again at the end though like if you delete the database yeah. does, does your whole yeah. VPC just get trashed does it, does it remove those subnuts again oh, no. I don't know it just, it's, it's crazy I, I, I read the article it seems like a, a huge not exactly conflict of interest but you know if you're going to deploy something in the cloud, like a database, you should already have figured out how networking works and you should already have a host to connect to it and you should already do these things. I mean, it reminds you of like a quick lab or something. Press a button and get get the thing set up. But Someone That's was probably what it's Where'd aimed you? at, actually, to be honest. I mean, it's probably aimed at like not production environments. Yeah, like we, we're seeing that people are getting stuck in this quick lab at this one particular spot. And if we just made a one-click option, then they would not get stuck here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, you can now capture AWS site-to-site VPN connection logs using Amazon CloudWatch. I mean, I don't have to troubleshoot VPNs by just assuming what's in DevNull anymore. That's that's super nice. I appreciate that one. <laughs> this is a feature request from the AWS support team who are tired of customers asking them to log into the appliances and pull the logs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. AWS cost categories now support out-of-cycle cost categorization. Which is, if it's out of cycle, just don't make me pay for it. That's how I feel about out of cycle. Huh. End of the month came, man. You can't bill me for stuff after the end of the month. Sorry. That's how I like it. <laughs> That's what that means. I didn't even understand it. <laughs> it was on EKS and it says cluster level cost allocation tagging. This is the feature needed by your IT team who likes to bill everyone for everything. And this is how they get double billing of their EKS things. Perfect. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, if you're doing, you know, single tenant clusters, all right. It's the whole thing is expensive. Yeah. I just figured, I just figured they're going to charge you for the cluster and the v, the container. Because if they can charge you for both, why wouldn't they? This is a Rackspace use case all day long. They can tag the nodes, too, and use that for cache counters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah, you can probably get this, you know, three or four times. You tried hard. Yeah, exactly. I mean, cluster level cost allocation tagging is what we had prior to EKS. Cost allocation tagging. Correct. It's 
Yeah. It's just no tagging. <laughs> Everything old is new again, Peter. Come on. <laughs> Don't think about this too hard. It'll just hurt your brain. Uh, Azure UAE North availability zones now available. Love it that they you know, finally decided availability zones are important to cloud region. Especially one, in the, especially one in the desert where, you know, potentially an air conditioning failure could cause lots of outages <laughs> in a very hot region. Because when I was just there recently on a layover on my way to India, uh, it was 10 o'clock at night and 125 degrees still. Wow. wow. But it's a dry heat. <laughs> <laughs> very dry. Those servers yeah. like that dry heat. Let me tell you, when yeah. the server farm dies, the AC unit. Oh, oh man. So the, so the Azure... Uh, uh, Data center team, whatever they they fly out to UAE, and they come back again, and somebody says, "Do you buy anything?" <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> <the> data centers. <laughs> uh, Dad joke of the century. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't give it to you, Jonathan. I'm sorry. <laughs> I really want to, but I can't. I can't give it. I got to give it to Justin. Yeah, that was a spectacular try, though. Yeah, that was a. That was just. Uh, did you have that before the, the show, or did you? Did that just come to you just now? That's the really question. No, I, I, there was going to be a Dubai anything joke, but I was trying to figure out kind of how to make oh, it win, okay. but it did. So. That's clever, clever. I I will use it on my children next time because I love that joke. So <laughs> thank you, thank you for that. I will save it. Yeah. I think if you, I think if you were faster on the trigger, I might have just major gave it to you. <laughs> It did take a while to get there, so it yeah. was it was sort of like it was delayed. That's why I asked the question: like, Did you have that at the beginning of the show, or did yeah. that just come to you as we were talking? That's why I had to ask. <laughs> I was just hesitating because of the quality of the joke. Uh, no, you got to commit to the joke. <laughs> yeah. You got to commit to the joke. Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about all the things coming up once again. VM World in San Francisco at Moscone Center, August 29th through the first. Uh, can't wait to see all the Tanzu announcements uh, soon next week. Uh, join us for a show and tell at Google uh, for Google Cloud Security Talks, August 31st. And then uh, people care about the Power Platform, I guess, because there's a conference in Orlando, 1999-22. Uh, we talked last week about September, the new CSA conference event in Bellevue, Washington, September 26th through the 30th. And then, Jonathan, I have the conference for you. Alaskan. Drum roll, please. Ooh. <laughs> in San Francisco on October 4th. It's in your backyard. It's only $200. We can send you to this conference. As we talked about last week, you've now banned Elasticsearch from your life. Mm. Uh, but I, I think you might enjoy the Elasticon conference if you take a protest sign and get a seat right up in the front with that protest sign because the CEO of Elasticsearch is going to be keynoting at the event. And I think this could be an excellent uh, opportunity for some CloudPod promotion. I was, I'm just saying, just saying. I will wear my open search shirt <laughs> in, oh, the front, in the front row. Nice. <laughs> Nice. Very, very nice. Cut the sleeves off. <laughs> <laughs> we should do what yeah. Oracle do and get some, you know, uh, get some branded vehicles to drive around town. Get some open search yeah. <clears throat> cars to give people rides. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's another fantastic week here in the cloud. We'll see you guys next week. Good night. See you later. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.
All right, I have an after show for us this week. Um, so Elon Musk uh, apparently just uh, strengthened his court case a little bit with the Twitter whistleblower uh, named Mudge, I think is what I saw his name is, his nickname. Apparently he was a security guy that Twitter hired uh, and then basically put him on the roof like in uh, you know the, uh, the IT show about Silicon Valley. Uh, and said, you know, basically, don't do anything here. Don't have access to anything. And but he uh, apparently has come forward and is a very credible witness, Mr. Zatko, uh, that uh, you know the fake account problem at Twitter is very, very bad. And so, you know, I don't really care about this witness that much uh, and the 84-page complaint that he filed uh, in favor of uh, Mr. Musk and the bots and the spammy accounts. Uh, I am, you know, we haven't really talked about Elon Musk buying Twitter and uh, you know your guys' feelings about that. So I was curious what your guys' take on that was at this point. Now that we're Two months or three months into a protracted legal argument about if he has to buy it or doesn't buy it. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine him being forced to buy it. Just can't see that happening. I, I think no, he'll just have to pay. You know, I, you know, the penalty is part of the deal. I think it's where they'll settle. But um, well, he's, actually, he's trying to get out of even the penalty because he's saying they, they yeah. purposely lied to him. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Yeah. Like, if you can say you lied to you, when you know all the Twitter accounts are public, you, they're not hidden. So you can you can do your own analysis, determine if they're public or bots or whatever else. So. I don't know. I, so I first read this before it was sort of like Elon Musk lawyers got ahead of it and or hold of it and put it on there, you know, as part of the caucus. It just the, the whistleblower report doesn't really have anything to do with Elon. It's just it's part of his wrongful termination sort of plea. And it's it does some of the allegations that he makes um, as far as like the security issues within Twitter are pretty bad. <laughs> Like it's, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's a good it's, thing they don't cross us credit card transactions because I'd be concerned. Yeah. But I mean, my my 140 character thoughts in the yeah. middle of the night don't I don't really okay. <laughs> well, but if you think about it in terms of like free speech or or censorship or those kinds of things, like you know, most Twitter employees can go and edit tweets or yeah. or output in you know in your name, right? Allegedly. Have, allegedly, 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 they have access to do so. We do not need the cloud pod added to the lawsuit. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Allegedly. (laughs) Like, you know, and just the, and then the cover-ups that stem from that were really pretty damning. Like, they really didn't, not not really associated with this court case from what I can tell, just in general. Not good. How's your Twitter engagement been recently? Because I I don't know whether the algorithm has changed over the past few months or something, but I open the, you know, log in, open the homepage, whatever. I'm not seeing a fraction of the things I used to see. And whether it's a bunch of accounts are being terminated or suspended, people I used to follow, I don't know. But I just, I don't know, it just seems to have kind of gone downhill a little bit. Maybe, maybe a bunch of people bailed out when they thought Musk was going to buy it. I have no idea, but mm-hmm. it seems a little quiet right now. It's de- I definitely agree that I feel like the vibe has changed. Well, I mean, I guess everyone's gone over the truth social. <laughs> <laughs> uh no i mean I, I it definitely has felt like it's been less um less busy this summer for sure and i i think people are just taking a break i think they're you know they're all preparing for a very long midterm <laughs> they're all preparing for you know whatever else is going to happen and i think people are just taking a break because cold you know and especially with the risk of elon buying it i think has got a lot of people kind of down on twitter in general i know um you know, there's a lot of concern about what he's going to allow back onto the platform if he actually did buy it, which again, I hope he doesn't. Um, and so I think he, I definitely think we're kind of just in it's summer and it's just kind of dead in general. As, long, as, long as what happens in summer. 
people are on the beach. People are going outside instead of like stuck on their phones. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're going back to offices because they're being forced by Apple back to the office. I mean, that's their choice too. (laughs) They're they're commuting too much. They don't have time for Twitter. That's true. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of interesting to me, this whole Twitter thing in general, because I, I would say if you asked me five years ago, I'd be like, Elon Musk is really great. I really like what he's doing and he's, you know, the Tesla thing. And then he's gotten worse and worse over time. And now I don't really care for him. <laughs> yeah. In my opinion, I mean, like I still like the Tesla, the car company. Uh, I still like the Tesla car. I think it's nice. Uh, the founder CEO, yeah, like he could go away and I'd be okay. I, you know, like I, I think like anything, you know, it's too much, too much of a good thing. Too much of a figure in the public. You know, you know like it's it's never going to go well. You, it becomes self fulfilling and self fueling as you try to like make sure you stay relevant and generating the next. It gets into wow factor and and I think he's part of that machine a little bit where it's he's appreciating the uh, fifteen minutes of fame and it's it's growing a little stale as he's trying to stay stay out there. I mean, he named his daughter or son a really weird name, and I was kind of thinking, when I, I think that was my last straw. I was like, I just, I can't, <laughs> I don't know, I can deal with you anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, pur- the purpose trolling all the time is just, it gets tiring. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Corey, um, you know, I, I find that I read less and less of his stuff because I, I'm just kind of over it. <laughs> not mm-hmm. that he's, a, not that he's not wrong or right or whatever, but it's, uh, you know, I, sometimes you just don't want, you don't want the the tone to it. You just want to read it and move on with your life. I think that's part of the, I think that everybody is like, I think that Twitter got to a point where people were monetizing, getting other people angry and their comments could be completely false. And they know they're false. They're educated in a topic regarding take politics out of it and just say like sports, right? All I got to do is constantly make, false statements about famous players and everybody's going to respond about how stupid I am. And I get tons of, uh, activity on my site. I get tons of new followers and I can monetize that. And I think that a lot of people are basically took advantage of that for a while and then sort of wore everybody out. All our adrenal glands are done. We're tired of it. And I've gotten that way with a lot of people who I considered news sources prior. And now they're just basically clickbait. And I just, I went a step farther than um, unfollowing them. I'm, I muted them or blocked them just because I, I didn't want anything to do with them in my life. That's kind of how I felt when I left Facebook a couple of years ago. I just got mm-hmm. tired of the same old things over and over again, the same debates over and over again. Yep. And they're, they're, they're never things everyone's going to agree on. And so all that happens is just a constant churn, the constant stress. You, know, you wake up in the morning, check your phone. Oh, look, it's that same old argument about whatever gun ownership drugs yeah. it, it could be anything and it's just yeah it's just carbohydrates yeah, yeah. oh don't, don't <laughs> even start on that uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah the most of what i do now on on facebook is like groups and it's just great because it's a conversation about a topic i want to talk about that's not and it's a community of people who mm-hmm. want to be positive about that topic you know not yeah. people getting on their their freaking soapbox yeah, I mean, it's been seven or eight years now since I've been an active Facebook user beyond groups, and and groups are you know typically very selective to what I'm looking for. Uh, like, but you know, I have friends and stuff who are still there, and I remember clicking into it and you know realizing how many had gone down the alt right 
wagon of QAnon and like, okay, I can't be friends with that person anymore. And, you know, it's like, I just, it was better off not knowing. And so I just, yeah, again, mm-hmm. like, I'm not going back there unless I need to do something, you know, with one of those groups that I'm part of, like school groups and stuff like that, that are, they all insist on using Facebook groups because it's the most popular, but it's like, you're forcing me to use this thing I don't really want to use. Yeah, just cover your eyes just so you can just barely see the groups button, <laughs> click the groups button, and then you're safe. <laughs> You know, what we should do is we should write a Google extension that just takes you right to groups. So when yeah. you go to Facebook, yeah. it just redirects you right to the groups page. Like you know, you just bypass everything else. Like yeah. you can't get to it. That's that's what we need. We need a plugin for that. That'd be great. Uh, all right. Well, that was a fun, we ended up kind of going a different direction. Than I thought we were going to talk about. It, so that was. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Well, uh, we'll talk next week. See you later. All right. All right take all right. it easy.